You're listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. Midtown Church is a family compelled by God's love to practice the way of Jesus together in Austin. Our big prayer is this, in Austin as it is in heaven. Learn more at midtownaustin.org. Well, good morning, everybody, and welcome. Welcome to Midtown Church. Please find your seat real quick. And we will get started with this morning's teaching. I do want to say, um, well, I'll introduce myself first. How about that? Some of you may not know me. My name is Matt Tolander. I'm the spiritual formation pastor here on staff at Midtown Church. It's really an honor uh, to serve this family in that role. And I want to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there. Um, This is a day for us to celebrate you. Uh, Having a good father in this life is an incredible, incredible gift and blessing. Uh, that many people do not have. And so we want to celebrate the fathers here. And we also, we want to acknowledge that, that some of you, uh, Father's Day may bring up some negative feelings. Uh, it may be a reminder of the father you didn't have. It may be a reminder of the father that, that you wish you had. Um, I want to encourage you that if today is a painful day for you related to uh, your father and your relationship with your father or your lack of relationship with your father, I want to remind you that God, your heavenly Father, knows you and sees you and knows what you feel. And in fact, this story that we've been studying together on Sunday mornings in the book of Ruth is in fact the story of how God is working in the lives of people whose lives were very negatively impacted by a decision that their father made. And so if if that feels like you, then you you have some... uh, some commonality with these characters in this story. And then today, we're also celebrating Juneteenth. And Juneteenth is a holiday that marks a a very important day in Texas history. The the Emancipation Proclamation was issued in in January 1st, 1963. But the news that all of those who were held as slaves in the South were effectively free did not reach Texas until a full two and a half years later on June 19th, 1865. And that serves to remind us of a couple things. You know, the Emancipation Proclamation was not a total solution to the problem of racism in this country or the problem of racial violence, but it was a giant leap forward. And it reminds us of of a couple different things. One is that a proclamation without action is just a wish. The Emancipation Proclamation had to be brought to bear on the state of Texas through action. Um, And it also reminds us that we have uh, have further yet to go when it comes to the, the... the task of establishing racial righteousness in our community. Um, And I don't have time to get into a whole ton of details this morning, Um, but if you start to look into Texas prisons, you'll see that Texas incarcerates by proportion of our population. We incarcerate more people than any other democracy in the world. And of those incarcerated people, an overwhelming, overrepresented majority are black Texans. Uh, and only 30% of Texas prisons have air conditioning. So today after church, when you get in your car and it's 115 degrees in there, uh, remember those who are in prison, many of them for nonviolent crimes, many of them fathers separated from their children, causing pain down through the family. But proclamations without actions are just a wish. And Ruth makes a very grand proclamation to Naomi in this story. Um, And we're going to see the way that Ruth makes that proclamation a reality through her actions. This morning, we're looking at Ruth chapter 3. And so what I want to do before we get to chapter 3 is I need to recap the story so far for you. Some of you haven't been here for the whole series. You may not be familiar with the story of Ruth. So I want to recap the story and pick up some threads 
through the story that will come to play in chapter 3. So the story of Ruth is a story of what happens when God's extraordinary and loyal love, the Hebrew word is hesed, when the hesed, the loyal love of God, is expressed in the lives of ordinary people, especially in the midst of suffering and especially in a chaotic cultural climate. Um, in the seasons of life that are, that are the most confusing or the most painful or the most dangerous, God is not unaware, God is not uninvolved, and just because we sometimes lack the ability in the moment to recognize the activity of God, it doesn't mean that God is not working in the midst of even horrifying circumstances to accomplish his good purpose in the world. Sometimes God is, in fact, working very powerfully in and through the people that we have a tendency to look down on, if not just ignore entirely. And that's what the book of Ruth is about. The book of Ruth was written probably around the year 500 B.C., but the story itself takes place during the time of the Judges. Now, the time of the Judges was a 100-year period, about a 1,000 years before the birth of Christ, And in the book of Judges, we see the same phrase repeated to give us an idea of what it was like to live during that time. And it says this, In those days there was no king in Israel, and each one did what was right in their own eyes. So in the absence of strong spiritual leadership, everyone is left to make up what's right and wrong for myself. It's not very different from the climate that we live in today. And what you see is these cycles in the nation, cycles of sin and then judgment from God and then repentance and restoration, but then complacency and then a relapse into sin and so on and so forth. And so to live in the nation at this time, the time of the judges, it's very spiritually chaotic, it's culturally turbulent. And in that environment, the story of Ruth zooms in on one family, the family of a man named Elimelech. Now, Elimelech is a word that means, my God is king. And Elimelech's family lives in Bethlehem, which means house of bread. He has a wife, Naomi. Her name means pleasant. And he has two sons, Malon and Kilion. And Elimelech and his family have a problem. And the problem is that the house of bread is empty. There is a famine in Bethlehem. And we can assume, because this is taking place during the time of the judges, that this famine is actually God's way of trying to move the nation toward repentance. This famine is itself an act uh, of, of judgment, of discipline. And Elimelech, facing this problem of a famine in his homeland, decides, I'm going to take my family to Moab. Now, I didn't hear anybody gasp just now. But the original readers of this story would have gasped. Because for biblical Israel, Moab is held up as this extreme example, this extreme negative example of a foreign people. The origin story of Moab and the Moabites is found in Genesis 19, in which Lot's daughters get him drunk and they lay with him, biblically keep up. And while he was passed out, while he was passed out, they lay with him in hopes that they will get pregnant with sons and continue their family line. Sons, very important in this culture, and we're going to see that in the book of Ruth as well. Now, their plan works, and one of the sons born from that incest is named Moab, which is a play on the word for father. Happy Father's Day. And other examples. When the Israelites were traveling from Egypt to the land of promise, they sought permission from the king of Moab to pass through Moab on the king's highway, and the king responded by attacking them. The Moabites worshipped a god named Chemosh, which involved ritualistic sex, and the Moabite king participated in child sacrifice. In fact, the Jewish law forbids all intercourse with the Moabites, social, religious, sexual. They weren't supposed to have anything to do with the Moabites. And just a few generations after the story of Ruth, 
King Solomon will take Moabite wives, adopt their religious practices, and that's ultimately what costs him his rule, and it, it causes the kingdom of Israel to be split in two, which eventually leads to the downfall of both kingdoms. So in the cultural memory of the people who are reading this story, Moab does not have positive associations. It's very hard to construe Elimelech's decision to go to Moab as a positive move. What we see instead is that anxiety has overpowered faithfulness in Elimelech's heart, and he makes a business decision. He follows the money. He follows the resources. He doesn't give thought to, how is this going to affect my family? He doesn't give thought to, what could the spiritual ramifications of this be? He makes the business decision, follows the money, takes his family to Moab, and then Elimelech dies. Now, his wife, Naomi, and their sons stay in Moab, and the sons find Moabite women to marry, named Orpah and Ruth. But both women appear to be barren, and both sons die in Moab without leaving sons of their own. And this leaves Naomi alone in a pagan land with no one to protect her, no one to provide for her, two daughters-in-law for whom she must now provide, all in the midst of experiencing this this, uh, this trauma, this loss, this brokenness, this disappointment. But there is good news at this point. Naomi learns that the house of bread is filling up again. The harvest has returned in Bethlehem. God has relented. He's shown favor on his people again. And so she decides to return to Bethlehem, but she doesn't have much hope that she'll be able to provide for her new daughters-in-law if they return to her with her. Uh, they'll be widows, they'll be foreigners, they'll be extremely vulnerable in the moral wasteland of Judges-era Judah. And what's more, they both appear to be barren. And so what that means is that they have no cultural value in the strict patriarchy of this time. They're vulnerable to being abused, they are vulnerable to being mistreated, they're vulnerable to being trafficked. And so Naomi thinks it may actually be better for them to return to their homes and to try and find husbands among their own people. So Naomi tells them, go back to your families. And Orpah takes this instruction and she goes home. Orpah means nape, nape, like the back of your neck. She shows the back of her neck to Naomi and goes home. But Ruth, in her first words in the story, refuses to leave Naomi. She says, where you go, I will go. Where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. And that's a bold proclamation that she's going to follow up with action. So Naomi and Ruth return to Bethlehem, and when they get back, all of the townspeople are saying, Naomi's back, Naomi's back, could this be her? And Naomi says, no, don't call me Naomi, don't call me pleasant. Call me Mara, which means bitter or stubborn. She says, I went out of here full, but I returned empty. I left with a husband and two sons, and I returned with Nothing. I returned with no cultural value to the home that I left. And so Ruth immediately gets to work providing for the two of them by gleaning in a harvest field. Ruth is an immigrant who's going on welfare. Gleaning is the process that's outlined in the law for providing for the vulnerable in the community. It's described in Deuteronomy 24 where harvesters were instructed not to pick up the grain or the olives or the grapes that they had accidentally dropped on the ground when they were harvesting it. They were supposed to leave these for the widow, the orphan, and the foreigner. Now, Ruth, notice, happens to be all three of those and a woman to boot. She is extremely vulnerable. She is exactly the kind of person that this law was designed to protect. And this decision of Ruth's to provide for Naomi by gleaning the harvest field contrasts 
with the decision that Elimelech made to move the family to Moab. Elimelech's decision to move the family to Moab was uh, about trying to provide for his family, but by sidestepping the way that God had uh, outlined to do it. But Ruth does it in the way that the law describes. And Ruth happens to be gleaning in the field of a man named Boaz, who is a relative of Elimelech and Naomi. Boaz is described in the text as Gibor Heil, a man of worth, a man of honor, or a man of valor. It's the same designation in Hebrew that's given to the Proverbs 31 woman, except in this case, it's in the masculine form. And the thing you have to understand about Boaz, because so often we try and make the book of Ruth about like dating and romance, and like that's, romance is in there, but it's not really the foreground thing. The thing you need to know about Boaz is that Boaz is not like a slightly older eligible bachelor, Okay. Boaz is an aging man. He's maybe twice her age. The Hebrew tradition puts Boaz at 80 and Ruth at 40. Um, He could be twice her age. And if he had put off marriage and childbearing, and if he had deprioritized the continuation of his family line, he would not be considered Gibor Heil. He would not be considered a worthy man, an honorable man in this culture. In this culture, in order to be considered a noble man, he would have to have sons. So maybe he has been widowed. Maybe he has a living wife, but bachelors are a modern phenomenon, and Boaz was not one. Uh, But Ruth meets Boaz while gleaning in this field, and Boaz already knows her by reputation. He knows about the vow that she made to Naomi, and he understands that Ruth is gleaning in his field to provide for her. He says to Ruth, I've been told all about what you've done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with a people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you've done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Now, I want you to just copy and paste that phrase into your notes, because it's going to come up later. He says, may you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, here's the phrase, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz instructs Ruth to stay and continue gleaning in his field until the end of the harvest, and he even instructs some of the field workers to, like, drop some sheaves of of wheat on purpose for her to pick up. And the first day, he sends Ruth home with 30 pounds of grain, which is at least 15 times the amount of grain that the men working in the field would have taken home as payment. Now, when Ruth relays all of this information from the gleaning, when she relays all of this to Naomi, Naomi is thrilled about the situation because she knows Boaz. She knows that Boaz is Gibor Heil, a man of honor. And Naomi is looking at this and she's going, like, Ruth is extremely vulnerable and in another man's field she might be in danger. She might be in danger of being abused or taken advantage of in some way, but she's going to be safe gleaning in Boaz's field. And furthermore, he's a relative of their family, which means that he's close enough, he's a close enough relative to act on the family's behalf in certain matters within the legal system. But Naomi doesn't mention that yet. At this point, she's just happy that Ruth won't be in danger. And that's where Act 2 of the story ends, and we'll pick up the story in Act 3. And at this point, some time has passed, and the desperation is thick. Uh, Ruth has been able to provide for her and Naomi by gleaning in Boaz's field, but the harvest is ending, and there hasn't been any change in their family situation. Boaz is in a position to help them, but so far he's been mostly passive and he hasn't made any moves. And so the clock is running out on Ruth and Naomi. It's now or never, and so Naomi hatches a plan. And here's her plan. 
in Ruth chapter 3, starting in verse 1. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, said to her, My daughter, I must find a home for you where you will be well provided for. See, Naomi thinks it's her responsibility to rescue Ruth. Uh, She said so in chapter 1, and she's saying it again. But soon we're going to see who is really rescuing whom in this situation. But Naomi's plan for rescuing Ruth is to try and get Ruth and Boaz together. So verse 2, Naomi says, Now Boaz, with whose women you have worked, is a relative of ours. Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. So winnowing barley, threshing barley is a process like this. The the threshing floor is a a flat ground or a stone surface, big circle, and it's surrounded on all sides by these large rocks, and it's usually up at the top of a hill where it's windy. The reason it needs to be windy is because the threshing process involves the wind. So what they would do is they would put the unthreshed grain on the ground, and then they would rough it up. They would stomp on it or beat it with sticks or roll heavy stones around on it or have animals walk on it. And that process separates the grain from the husk of the wheat. And then what they would do is they would take shovels and they would toss the grain and the husks up into the air. The wind would carry the husks away and the grain would fall back down to the ground. And that's how they would separate the the wheat from the chaff. And at the end of when they're done threshing all the grain after the harvest, there's always a huge, huge party. Uh, And after the celebration, the men would sleep at the threshing floor to protect the grain from animals and thieves and that sort of stuff. Now, in this instance, this is the first harvest in a very, very long time. So this is going to be a huge, huge party. And evidently, in the time of the judges, prostitutes are known to show up to these. So here's what Naomi says Ruth is to do while Boaz is winnowing on the threshing floor. She says, verse 3, Wash, put on perfume, and get dressed in your best clothes. In other words, don't wear your working clothes. Don't wear your widow's clothes. Like, dress for the part you want, right? And then, go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. See, Naomi is very concerned about the timing of this conversation that Ruth is about to have with Boaz. She doesn't want Ruth to, like, run into the middle of the thing and try and pull Boaz into a conversation when his attention is divided. If he's trying to celebrate and stuff with his friends, Naomi doesn't want Ruth running in and pulling on his elbow and like, Boaz, hey, can we talk right now? We need to define this relationship. Like, like, can we have a minute, please? She doesn't want Ruth doing that. She wants Ruth to wait until Boaz is not preoccupied, which I think is like very good advice. I mean, how often have you been in a situation where someone is trying to communicate something very important to you or really needs your attention, and all you can think about is like how you've had to go to the bathroom for 20 minutes? Like... It's kind of a similar thing. She wants Boaz's attention undivided so that Ruth can put a request in front of him. Naomi says, verse 4, When he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, because it's windy up there on the threshing floor. That's why his feet need to be uncovered. He will tell you what to do. The idea is that once he uncovers his feet, it was windy up there, so he'll get a little cold. He'll probably wake up and notice that she's there. So Ruth says, I'll do whatever you say. Now, this is a risky, risky, risky proposal. Um, It's risky for a few different reasons. One of those reasons is that Ruth could just be rejected outright by Boaz. Um, From a worldly perspective, Boaz has all the power in this interaction. Okay, Boaz is rich. Ruth is poor. Boaz is native. She's a foreigner. Boaz is Jewish. She is a Gentile. Boaz is a man. She is a woman. Boaz could accuse her of immorality. And Ruth has no other way to get to, Bo- to 
she has no other way to get Boaz alone. She has no other way to have this private conversation. And so this is the opportunity for Ruth to put a request before Boaz where if he reacts extremely negatively, at least it will be in private and Ruth won't have to be publicly shamed. And so this is very much like a Hail Mary desperation play because Naomi and Ruth are running out of time. Their family line is going to go out. So verse 6, Ruth went down to the threshing floor. She did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile. Ruth approached quietly, uncovering his feet, and she lay down. Now, some interpret Ruth's actions here as being designed to seduce Boaz, right? Naomi's plan, it seems a little questionable. You know, wear your fancy clothes, put on perfume, wait till he's drunk, and then in the middle of the night, take his clothes off while he's asleep, and then lie down next to him, and then when he wakes up, just do whatever he tells you to do. I mean, none, none of you would give that advice uh, to your daughter. Um, is, is Naomi telling Ruth to seduce Boaz? Is that what's going on? I think no, and I have a few reasons. The first reason is that Boaz is Gibor Heil. He's known as being this morally upright man. And so if Ruth throws her body at this man and he rejects her, it would have much more severe consequences uh, than if Ruth was rejected without having made a sexual advance. The second reason I don't think that's what's going on here is that the author is not trying to tell us the story of two young single God followers who are late in life and single and need to, to hook up and have this passionate romantic love. That's not the story we're being told here. The story we're being told here uh, is the story of how a Moabite helped restore an Israelite's confidence in God by embodying God's hesed, his loyal love, in the midst of sin and wickedness during the time of the judges. That's the point of Ruth is that she's a Moabite. Over and over, the narrator says, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite, Ruth the Moabite. Uh, I saw actually a, a scholar did a translation of Ruth that was illustrated with these woodcut illustrations. And in the illustrations, Ruth has a tattoo on her head um, to illustrate this, this difference. She is a Moabite. She is different. She doesn't belong. Uh, nevertheless, the author does seem comfortable with a little innuendo about how much of Boaz's legs Ruth has uncovered. So, proceeding with lots of trepidation here, um, I'm going to give you my take on this. Uh, I used to teach sex ed, so I've been in much more awkward situations than this. But So, there's been some interpretive discussion about the word uh, in verse 4, which is translated feet. Because in other places in the Hebrew Bible, uh, it seems to function as a euphemism for genitals. But in this passage, the Hebrew construction actually suggests the lower part of the legs, maybe up to the thighs, but not to the degree that uh, his genitals would be exposed. But here's something to note. The most important thing about a faithful Jewish man's genitals is not that he can use them for sex. That's how Americans think about their genitals. The most important thing about a faithful Israelite's genitals is that he has been circumcised and he bears in his body the sign of the covenant between God and God's people. So perhaps there is actually a little non-sexual nudity happening. Maybe Boaz's circumcision is showing. And maybe that, in fact, will help Ruth make her point because Ruth is about to go off book. Okay, up till now, she's followed Naomi's instructions to a T, but she's about to take some matters into her own hands, and we're going to find out it's not Naomi who's rescuing Ruth. It's not Boaz, really, who's rescuing Ruth. It's Ruth who is going to rescue Elimelech's whole family line. So here's what happens. Verse 8, 
Boaz wakes up. In the middle of the night, something startled the man. He turned, and there was a woman lying at his feet. I mean, I happened to wake up in the middle of the night last night, and I just laying there in the darkness, thought, how weird would it be if I just woke up in the middle of the night and there was just a woman at the, at the foot of my bed? There's a woman lying at his feet. Who are you, he asked. Fair question. She says, I'm your servant, Ruth. And then she says this, spread the corner of your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Now you can see, spread your garment over me, since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. Ruth's request does not seem to be motivated by her own romantic interest in Boaz. The question of whether Ruth is uh, romantically interested in Boaz is actually hardly addressed in the book. The motivation in every encounter is Ruth and Naomi's survival and the survival of their family line, which is why she identifies Boaz here as a guardian redeemer. Now, the role, the guardian redeemer is a role that comes from their legal system, And the guardian redeemer is someone who, under Israelite law, they're a near relative who is supposed to step in if another relative is in crisis. So they have a few different responsibilities, but the most important one to this story is that kinsmen, guardian redeemers, uh, were supposed to act. If If a family were forced to sell their ancestral land, you know, for whatever reason, they're in financial hardship, if they were forced to sell their land then a kinsman redeemer, a near relative, could step in and buy the land on their behalf so that the land would stay in the family and they could eventually uh, take it back. And so that is what Ruth is trying to put before Boaz right here. But she combines that role with another role from the Israelite law, which raises the question, I mean, how does Ruth know the law so well? Like, did Naomi teach her the law? Has she been studying the law? Did Israel have a reputation at this point? Ruth combines the kinsman-redeemer, guardian-redeemer law with the leveret law. Now, the leveret law is this. It stated that if a man in the family died, it was his blood brother's responsibility to marry that man's widow so that she could bear a son who could then care for her in her old age. And then that son would take the place of the departed husband in the family tree. This was a law designed to protect widows who, as we've established, are extremely vulnerable Uh, in this society. So Ruth wants Boaz to fulfill both roles. She wants Boaz to redeem the family, and she wants Boaz to marry her. She says to him, you're a kinsman redeemer, so cover me up. The, uh, The spreading of the corner of a garment over a woman at this time was a sign of a marriage proposal. You see it actually illustrated in Ezekiel 16. And so Ruth is saying to him, propose to me. She's proposing the the proposal. Um, And this is this is something that no woman would ever do in this culture. Marriages at this time were arranged. They were arranged by a patriarch. Ruth doesn't have that kind of resource available to her, and so she's doing what she absolutely can. But what's happening here is much more than a marriage proposal. There's something really subtle that I don't want you to miss. You might remember earlier I said there's a key phrase you need to copy and paste. Boaz said, May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. The Hebrew word for wing is the word kanaf. The word kanaf also means corner, as in the corner of a garment. And so Boaz had said to Ruth, you've come to seek refuge under God's wings. And Ruth comes and says to Boaz, put your wing over me and spread the corner of your garment, spread the wing of your garment 
over me. She uses the exact same language that he used in their very first interaction, and she uses it here. So what she's doing is she's saying, Boaz, step up. Like, you prayed that God would reward me and shelter me under his wings, but you have the power to answer your own prayer for me, so I want you to do it. You have the power to redeem this family, and so I want you to do it. You reward me. Don't have God reward me. I want you to reward me by marrying me. You shelter me under your wings. Yes, I'm a Moabite. Yes, I'm a widow. Yes, the law forbids me from entering the assembly of God. But I know you're God, and here I am. So help me, help Naomi, help me save Elimelech's family, and marry me. I mean, this is a very bold, very risky, very selfless, very family-oriented decision. It's not just all about Ruth and Boaz's uh, romance. And so what we see here is that Ruth, from a worldly point of view, is extremely disempowered and extremely disadvantaged, and yet she's acting in the power of hesed. She's acting in the power of God's loyal love. And so because of that, she has all the power that she really needs. She has all the power that she needs. Here's how Boaz replies. He says, the Lord bless you, my daughter. This kindness, this hesed, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You've not run after the younger men, whether whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. There's a few really important things we need to notice from Boaz's reply. The first is that he sees Ruth, he sees her need, he's flattered by her interest in him, and he's sort of delighted by the, the chutzpah with which she's taken this huge risk. On behalf of Naomi, he's, he's sort of tickled by it. He blesses her, and he calls her my daughter, which is the same phrase that Naomi uses at the beginning of the chapter to refer to her. So this indicates that Boaz now feels responsible for Ruth. He's taking on responsibility. And he talks about this kindness, this hesed, this act of loyal love, this act of family devotion is greater than the former act of devotion. Now, the former act of devotion was that Ruth had, had given up her homeland and forsaken her past in order to go with Naomi and be uh, assimilated into a new culture and have a new family and a new God and an entirely new life. That's all very impressive, but Boaz says, no, this act is actually greater uh, than that act. She could have pursued younger men. If what she was really looking for was a hot husband, Boaz is not the direction to go. But she hasn't. She's come to Boaz, not because he's the man of her dreams, but because he has the power to act to benefit the entire family, especially Naomi. Ruth is doing this selflessly. She's doing it for Naomi. She's doing it for Elimelech, not for herself. And Boaz recognizes that. And that is why Boaz calls her a woman of noble character, Eshet Heil. It's the feminine construction of the way Boaz is described. He's Gibor Heil, a worthy man. She is Eshet Heil, a worthy woman. It's the same phrase from Proverbs 31. And so in this extremely wild twist, a Moabite fulfills the vision of the ideal woman in the Israelite culture. And so Boaz is able, he's willing But he wants to make sure things are done the right way. And there's someone else who's a closer relative and who happens to have the right of first refusal when it comes to the leveret role and the redeemer role. So he says, verse 12, although it is true that I am a guardian redeemer of our family, there's another who's more closely related than I. Stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to do his duty as your guardian redeemer, good, let him redeem you. But if he's not willing, as surely as the Lord lives, 
I will do it. Boaz swears his commitment. He has accepted Ruth's proposal, and his immediate action toward her is protective. He says, lie here until morning. It's the middle of the night. It's not a safe time for Ruth to be traveling home. So she lay at his feet till morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized, and he said, no one must know that a woman came to the threshing floor. He's protecting her reputation because of the other women who would have showed up to the threshing floor. Um, he doesn't want Ruth to be confused for a prostitute. He doesn't want the other men assuming that something inappropriate happened or that Ruth used sex to manipulate Boaz into this deal. Verse 15, he also said, bring me the shawl you're wearing and hold it out. When, he, when she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley. Six measures of barley is 15 gallons. 15 gallons of dry grain weighs about 75 pounds. So Ruth is ready to carry this 75 pounds all the way back down the hill to Naomi. Clearly uh, a very um, you know, athletic, very strong woman. Uh, he, pl- he places the, I mean, I don't know if I could carry 75 pounds as long as Ruth is about to have to carry it. He puts 75 pounds of grain. I mean, just such an exorbitant amount of grain. It's just so, it's so over the top. But he places the bundle on her, and then he went back to town. So apparently Boaz wants to get this straightened out with the other relative right away. He recognizes the desperation, the urgency of the situation. He says, we've got to go figure this out. So Ruth goes back to report to Naomi, verse 16. When Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? She told her everything Boaz had done for her and added, He gave me these six measures of barley, saying, Don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. So you see, Boaz's love extends. It's not just about romance with Ruth. Boaz has love for the family, and he's serving Naomi too. So Naomi says, Wait, for my, wait my daughter until you find out what happens, for the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. As our communion team prepares to service uh, and as the band comes up, I want to point out uh, that through Ruth's actions, both Naomi and Boaz are learning something really important about God's hesed, about his loyal love. Naomi learns from Ruth that even when we've been emptied by suffering, God's hesed can refill us to overflowing. That's what Naomi learns from Ruth. Naomi functions in the Jewish imagination as sort of a female Job. She has the same sort of art. She starts with everything. She, she, in the middle, she has nothing, and then she's going to be restored. But by the end of Act 1 of this story, Naomi is one of the most pitiable characters in all of the Jewish literature. When she says, I went out from here full, and the Lord brought me back empty, she's not exaggerating from a worldly point of view. I mean, she is empty. She is broken. She has no social capital. She has no earthly hope for her future. And believing that God is the Almighty, she calls him El Shaddai, God Almighty, believing that God is all-powerful, she concludes, God did this to me. God has afflicted me. In the Hebrew, she says, God attacked me. She feels like God has punched her in the gut. And so she's given up on God. And some of you are in Naomi's place. Some of you feel what Naomi feels. You feel empty. You feel broken. You feel like God has abandoned you. Or you feel like God has turned on you. Or you feel like God is punishing you. And this story is meant to teach you that God has not abandoned you. That God has not turned on you. And that God is not punishing you. Here's what we see in this story with Naomi. Even though there are no visions, there are no voices, there are no visible, visible miracles from God in this whole story, Ruth's words and actions speak to Naomi and they speak to us 
on God's behalf. So in chapter 1, Ruth says, I'm not going to leave you. That's God speaking to Naomi through Ruth. Chapter 2, Ruth is, her actions are saying, I will take the responsibility to provide for your needs. That's God speaking to Naomi and to us. And in chapter 3, Ruth says, I will put my body, my dignity, my reputation, myself on the line to redeem your life. And when we take communion, we'll celebrate that God did just that for us in Jesus Christ. Naomi's great-great-grandson is King David. And I wonder, I, this occurred to me yesterday, and it, it's been hard for me to sort of get it out of my mind. Um, I wonder whether David had Naomi in mind when he wrote these words. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. How else would you describe Naomi's journey home from Moab to Bethlehem? Through the Jordan Rift Valley with three graves in Moab where her husband and her sons are laying. I mean, talk about a walk through the valley of the shadow of death. Though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no harm. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. You prepare a feast before me in the presence of my enemies. And you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and hesed will pursue me all the days of my life. God's loyal love for Naomi, which is embodied by Ruth, changes the trajectory of an entire family. Likewise, Boaz learns a lesson. Boaz learns from Ruth that God's hesed calls us from the letter of the law. It calls us to the spirit of the law. From the letter of the law to the spirit of the law. The letter of the law says, let them glean in the field. The spirit of the law says, feed them. The letter of the law says responsibility for our family members falls on the shoulders of a blood brother or the nearest relative. But the spirit of the law says God calls all of his people to care and to sacrifice for one another. Jesus would later condemn the Pharisees because they neglected the weightier matters of the law. That is, they were so focused on being faithful to the letter of the law that they failed to be faithful to the spirit of the law. So through this interaction with Ruth, Boaz is learning this incredible lesson. And here's the lesson. The lesson is that there are so many ways to obey God, and therefore, there are so many ways to love God. There are so many ways to love God. If someone has a need, and you can meet it, don't just wish them well. Don't just pray that God would meet their need. You know, yes, may, may God reward you for this act of kindness. Um, don't just pray that God would meet their need. If you can meet their need, then you meet their need. And trust that God won't leave you lacking on the other side. That's how you love God, is it not? James 2, 15 and 16, if you see a brother or sister who's naked and hungry and you say to them, be warmed and filled and yet don't give them what is necessary, what good is that? So here's the application from Boaz's journey in this chapter. The question is, how will we love God this week? Who will we show up for? Who will we serve? Who will we encourage or support or provide for? You know, what volunteer team will we sign up for? Who will we take out to dinner? Who needs help moving? Who needs a ride to work? Um, who needs someone to listen to them? Who needs help with rent this month? I mean, how can you love God this week by loving your wife or your husband? How can you love God by loving your kids or your parents or your siblings? I encourage you to take some time today at some point to just imagine the possibilities. Like, just ask God, show me all of the, the countless ways that I have at my disposal to love you today and this week, because there are so many ways to love God, and there are so many ways in which God is loved.
Thank you for listening to the Midtown Church Sermon Podcast. We invite you to practice the way of Jesus in Austin with us, because as we become more like Jesus, Austin will become more like heaven. Thank you.